Section 15 of the Underground Railroad, Part 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Dore. The Underground Railroad, Part 5 by William Still. Section 15. Portraits and Sketches, Lewis Tappan, Part 1. Was one of the warmest friends of the slave and of the colored man, he was very solicitous for their welfare, and that the colored people who were free should be enlightened and educated. He opened a Sunday school for colored adults, which was numerously attended, in West Broadway, New York, and with a few others devoted the most of the Sabbath to their teaching. When he and his brother Arthur assembled the seventy anti-slavery agents, who were thereafter, like firebrands, scattered all over the land, they held their meetings in this room. These agents were entertained by abolitionists in the city, and many of us had two or three of them in each of our families for a couple of weeks. They went out all over the land and were instrumental in diffusing more truth perhaps about the dreadful system of American slavery than was accomplished in any other way. He also aided in establishing several periodicals brimful of anti-slavery truth, among which were the anti-slavery record, the emancipator, the slave's friend, the latter to indoctrinate the children in anti-slavery. The American Missionary Society, originally begun for the support of a mission in Africa, on the occasion of the return of the Amistad captors to the native land, and now doing so much for the freedmen of the South, was almost entirely established by his efforts. During the continuance of slavery, much was done by this society for the diffusion of anti-slavery gospel. The Vigilance Committee for Aiding and Befriending Fugitives, of which I was treasurer, for many years, had no better or warmer friend than he. He was almost always at their meetings, which were known only to the elect, for we dared not hold them too publicly, as we almost always had some of the travelers toward the North Star present, whose masters or their agents were frequently in the city, in hot pursuit. At first we sent them to Canada, but after a while sent them only to Syracuse and the center of the state. In 1834, I think, was the first rioting, the sacking of Mr. Tappan's house, in Rose Street. The mob brought all his furniture out, and piling it up in the street, set it on fire. The family were absent at the time. Soon after, they stoned Reverend Mr. Ludlow's and Dr. Cox's church, and the house of the latter. They threatened Arthur Tappan and Company's store in Pearl Street, but hearing that there were a few loaded muskets there, they took it out in threats. But their mercantile establishment was almost ostracized at this time by the dry goods merchants, and country merchants in all parts of the country north as well as south did not dare to have it known that they bought goods of them, and when they did so, requested particularly that the bundles or boxes should not be marked from A. Tappan and Company, as was customary. Southern merchants especially avoided them, and when two or three years later there was a general insolvency among them, occasionally large losses to New York merchants, and in some cases failure. The Tappans were saved by having no southern debts. Through Mr. Tappan's influence and extensive correspondence abroad, many remittances came for the help of the Vigilance Committee from England and Scotland, and at one time an extensive invoice of useful and fancy articles in several large boxes was received from the Glasgow ladies, sufficient to furnish a large bazaar or fair, which was held in Brooklyn for the benefit of the committee. Although lately afflicted by disease, Mr. Tappan still lives in the enjoyment of all his faculties, and a good measure of health, and in his advanced years sees now some of the great results of his lifelong efforts for the restoration and maintenance of human rights. 
although still suffering under many of the evils which slavery has inflicted upon him the american slave no longer exists instead stands up in all our southern states the freed man knowing his rights and as a rule enjoying them original american abolitionists who met the scorn and odium the imputed shame and obloquy the frowns and cold shoulders which they bore through all the dark days of slavery now see and feel their reward in some measure to be completed only when they shall hear the plaudit inasmuch as ye have done it to the least of these my brethren ye have done it unto me anthony lane new york november eighth eighteen seventy one mr lane mr tappan's personal friend who labored with him in the anti-slavery cause and especially in the vigilance committee for many years from serious affection of his eyes was not prepared to furnish as full a sketch of his mr t's labors as was desirable mr tappan was therefore requested to furnish a few reminiscences from his own storehouse which he kindly did as follows william still esq my dear sir in answer to your request that i would furnish an article for your forthcoming book giving incidents within my personal knowledge relating to the underground railroad i have already apprised you of my illness and my consequent inability to write such an article as would be worthy of your publication however feeling somewhat relieved to-day from my paralysis owing to the cheering sunshine and the favor of my almighty preserver i will try to do what i can in dictating a few anecdotes to my amanuensis which may afford you and your readers some gratification these facts i must give without reference to date as i will not tax my memory with perhaps a vain attempt to narrate them in order as mentioned in my life of arthur tappan some abolitionists myself among the number doubted the propriety of engaging in such measures as were contemplated by the conductors of the underground railroad fearing that they would not be justified in aiding slaves to escape from their masters but reflection convinced them that it was not only right to assist men in efforts to obtain their liberty when unjustly held in bondage but a duty abolitionists white and colored both in slave and free states entered into extensive correspondence set their wits at work to devise various expedients for the relief from bondage and transmission to the free states and to canada of many of the most enterprising bondmen and bondwomen they vied with each other in devising means for the accomplishment of this objective those who had money contributed it freely and those who were destitute of money gave their time saying with the apostle silver and gold have i none but such as i have give i thee one i recollect that one morning on reaching my office that of the treasurer of the american missionary association my assistant told me that in the inner room were eighteen fugitives men women and children who had arrived that morning from the south in one company on going into the room i saw them lying about on the bales and boxes of clothing destined for our various missionary stations fatigued as they doubtless were after their sleepless and protracted struggle for freedom on inquiry i learned that they had come from a southern city after most extraordinary efforts it seemed that they had while in slavery secretly banded together and put themselves under the guidance of an intrepid conductor whom they had hired to conduct them without the limits of the city in the evening when the police force was changed they came through pennsylvania and new jersey to my office the agent of the underground railroad in new york took charge of them and forwarded them to albany and by different agencies to canada two i well remember that one morning as i entered the sabbath school one of the scholars a mrs mercy smith beckoned to me to come to her class 
and there introduced me to a young girl of about fifteen, as a fugitive, who had arrived the day before. In answer to my inquiries, this girl told me the name of the southern city and the names of the persons who had held her as a slave, and the mode of her escape, etc. I was walking near the water, she said, when a white sailor spoke to me, and after a few questions offered to hide me on board his vessel and conduct me safely to New York, if I would come to him in the evening. I did so, and was hid and fed by him, and on landing at New York he conducted me to Mrs. Smith's house, where I am now staying. Footnote. For three years I superintended a Sabbath school mostly composed of colored children and adults. Most of the teachers were warm-hearted abolitionists, and the whole number taught in the school during this period was seven or eight hundred. End footnote. To my inquiry, have you parents living and also brothers and sisters? She replied, there is no child but myself. Were not your parents kind to you, and did you not love them? Yes, I love them very much. How were you treated by your master and mistress? They treated me very well. How then, said I, could you put yourself in the care of that sailor, who was a stranger to you, and leave your parents? I shall never forget her heartfelt reply. He told me I should be free. One Sunday morning I received a letter informing me that an officer belonging to Savannah, Georgia, had started for New York, in pursuit of two young men of nineteen or twenty, who had been slaves of one of the principal physicians of the place, and who had escaped and were supposed to be in New York. The letter requested me to find them and give them warning. As there was no time to be lost, I concluded to go over to New York, notwithstanding the doubtfulness of attempting to find them in so large a city. I wrote notices to be read in the colored churches and colored Sabbath schools, which I delivered in person. I then went to the colored school, superintended by Reverend C.B. Bay. I stated my errand to him with a description of the young men. Why, said he, I must have one of them in my school. He took me to a class where I found one of the young men to whom I gave the needful information. He told me that his father was Dr. Blank of Savannah, and that he had five children by the young man's mother, who was his slave. On his marriage to a white woman, he sent his five colored children and their mother to auction, to be sold for cash to the highest bidder. On being put upon the auction block, this young man addressed the bystanders, and told them the circumstances of the case, that his mother had long lived in the family of the doctor, that it was cruel to sell her and her children, and he warned the people not to bid for him, for he would no longer be a slave to any man, and if anyone bought him, he would lose his money. He added, I thought it right to say this. I then spoke to the crowd. My father, said I, has long been one of your first doctors, and do you think it right for him to sell my mother and his children in this way? I was sold, and my brother also, and the rest, although my brother said to the crowd what I had said. We soon made our escape, and are now both in the city. I am a blacksmith and have worked six months in one shop in New York with white journeymen, not one of whom believes, I suppose, that I am a colored man. It was not surprising, for so fair was his complexion, that with the aid of a brown wig, after he had cut off his hair, he was completely disguised. He soon notified his brother, who lived in another part of the city, and both put themselves out of harm's way. They were remarkably fine young men, and it seemed a special providence that I should find them in such a large city and direct them to escape from their pursuer within one hour after I left my house in Brooklyn. I felt it to be an answer to prayer. End of section 15